1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where today I'm joined by two of my favorite ETF CTAs, namely Andrew Beer and Jerry Parker, to take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Andrew and Jerry, it is wonderful to have you both back on the podcast this week. How have you been doing? What's going on? Where you are today? I know you are somewhere very exotic, Andrew. Why don't we start with you?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it exotic, but I'm I uh, I, I have got myself down to a beach location to try to kites try to learn how to kite surf this week. So, hence the uh, hence hence my garb. Um, but no, look, thank you so much for having me back on the show. It's a pleasure to be here with 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 you yep. and, and the incomparable Jerry.
1: Absolutely, Jerry. Where where are you today? Uh, still in Tampa, Florida.
0: Great weather. Great to be here. And um, never kite surfed. I've got my three sons are really into anything like that, anything daredevil, kite surfing, mm-hmm. uh, wakeboarding, any of that stuff. And they all taught me, like, when are you gonna get out there? I'm like, I'm 65, leave me alone. <laughs> and uh, yeah. is there a, a virtual reality game that I could play that will satisfy you?
2: They, they uh, do, they have them on your iPhone. You can just, you can pretend <laughs> to do it.
1: <laughs> right, right. That sounds a lot a lot safer. Maybe not as fun, but a lot safer. Now, uh, of course, we're going to have a a wonderful conversation today on a very important topic, of course, uh, which is the, uh, the ETF route for CTAs and, of course, the new launch uh, of yours, Jerry. And I think it will be very interesting to hear because I also think there will be some differences maybe in the way both of you uh, look at this uh, new world. But before we do that, I'm always curious to know kind of um, what's been on your radar? What are the things that you're keeping uh, an eye on? Not necessarily specifically to to your own product or strategy, but just generally speaking. Um, and I'll I'll start with you, Andrew. What what's what's you found interesting the last few weeks since we last spoke?
2: Well, I, I mean, to me, the thing that's been so most interesting this year is just how 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 incredibly hard it's been to make macro predictions. Um, and I wrote I wrote a, a you know one of my commentary pieces was about you know this economy. I feel like it's like this drunk stumbling across a highway. And and you keep getting these big macroeconomic like eighteen wheeler trucks coming in, and they just miss it, and then and then it, it kind of stumbles into the next lane and it starts again. We've had all these, you know, really really daunting challenges. We had you know oil was going to go to two fifty last year. We were going to have gas rationing in Germany. We we're going to have a collapse of the banking system this year, and yet the economy is still standing. And, and and in the context of that, I think it's been very very difficult for human macro traders to trade it because if you'd said at the beginning of this year you know we're going to be right on inflation it's going to be stickier than than we expect rates are going to be higher than they were and yet growth without performed value by 25 percent. you know just kind of the you can get the macro right call but still get the trades wrong so i think it's been a it, it's been a fascinating and really challenging environment and i don't know if it's going to continue like this but but it's certainly been interesting to watch
1: I think that's a great point, actually, um, which obviously speaks to um, our way of looking at markets for sure. W- what about you, Jerry? Besides your own launch, which I'm sure has taken most of your focus, I'm sh- uh, you know what is there anything else that has hit your radar so far this year?
0: Well, just trading wise, you know, I think the good old trend following got us positioned correctly in the bar, uh, stocks when. Uh, the people were doubting the rally and still doubting it, of course, and maybe it won't turn into be too much, but at least we're positioned correctly just by following the trend. And at the same time, uh, supposedly higher rates are negative for stocks, but we stayed with our short bonds uh, because they pretty much stayed in the downtrend as well. So I think it's, um, I'm happy to, I think, to have on the correct positions, even though they may not work, uh, but sometimes uh, trend is a better indicator where the markets are going than all the talking we hear uh, and all the logic we hear from the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, no, uh, well said, absolutely. Speaking of trend, um, just before we dive into the topics, a very, very short brief update uh, for this week. is just that I would say July seems to be a little bit soft for trend followers, giving back a little bit of the profits we made in the first half, but really not a lot of drama going on so far. My own trend barometer Uh, Closed yesterday at 39, which is uh, very consistent with absolutely nothing happening uh, on a bigger picture. And as of Thursday night, uh, we saw, maybe this is Wednesday night, actually, we see the beta 50 being down 88 basis points for the month, down one and a quarter for the year. Uh, SockGen CTA index down about 2% and 2% for the year. SockGen trend down about 2.4 and 2.3 for the year. And the short-term traders index down about 20 basis points and down 3.4%. This year, and of course, in contrast, the equities are doing really well, as Jerry alluded to, uh, up 2.2% for MSCI World and 16.4% for the year. Government bonds completely flat this month, and the S&P 500 up almost 2% and up 18% for the year. Now, each of you sent me some topics that we're going to talk about, uh, which is super helpful, so I appreciate that, and uh, maybe I can interject one or two uh, as well along the way. But before we get into the specifics, this since as Andrew put it before we press record, this is a bit of a launch party, of course for for your product, uh, Jerry. I'd love to hear you talk about, uh, and I'm sure you've been asked this a lot the last couple of weeks, but still, I'd like to hear your kind of your experience with launching the new ETF Trend Following Plus Nothing, the kind of motivation for doing it, and maybe what has been the most uh, challenging part of that process.
0: We're both trying to do something very hard here, which is replication is difficult, and then trading 300 markets in an ETF is is hard, and uh, especially commodities and futures. And combining futures and securities, there's administrative issues with uh, finding uh, market makers who can handle such a thing. So uh, that's been the big challenge to begin with, is uh, taking the CTA world, the futures, the trend following into this, uh, ETF world with their expectations and the way they do things, which is stock centered versus, uh, our way of doing things, which is, uh, mostly futures, but then, uh, also mostly trend following. So it's been a, a kind of a interesting path to merge all of these different, uh, partners we have to create a successful launch, but we're a long ways from a successful product. You know, it's, it's difficult. And, um, a good bid offer. You know, it's kind of like back down to this unsexy thing. You know, what's the bid offer on this thing? And, uh, I've been encouraging people to buy it, but use limit orders. Uh, I even had a friend of mine, believe it or not, who said, can you short it? I'm like, Stop, <laughs> stop. <laughs> Why are you doing this? So, you know, it's, it's the nitty gritty. What's the bid offer? How much can you do? It's small. It's not liquid yet. It's uh weird. And, um, there have been some people who didn't use limit orders that I wish they would have.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, soon someone will contact you uh, as they did with Andrew and say, "Can I do a two X version of it?" Um, and uh, that might be interesting. And you are breaking some barriers down, Jerry, and I really applaud you for that. Uh, in fact, I would say you're breaking you're breaking the ice, which is probably maybe why the picture on your on the website for the ETF. Has an icebreaker on it, or is that just completely random? Oh well, I have to admit,
0: honestly, I did notice that, so it must be random. It didn't come from me. I'm surprised that uh they all went for TFPN without any complaints, like how hokey that is or goofy. But uh but you asked another question, which I'm totally ready for, and this is my first. I knew this was coming now, so hopefully, I have a decent answer. But why did you do such a thing? And honestly. The reason we did it is we had nothing to lose. Our ideas of 300 markets and 150 being stocks and trend following stocks and not using uh, dynamic position sizing, fall management, correlation management, these ideas are just totally rejected by anybody who um, has any amount of money to invest in CTAs, so institutions in particular, and it was just, uh, so we just had nothing to lose. Why not do it? Why not accept lower fees? You know, it's a little bit like that book, The Innovator's Dilemma, where the innovation is going to come from smaller companies on the sidelines who are not going to destroy current products that they already have with, that's making them a lot of money. So we didn't have a big fund making one in 20 or two in 20 or anything in 20. So, why not? If we would have been said, okay, yeah, we'll put you in our portfolio with the typical managed futures CTA. We, we can stomach your stock trading. We can, uh, we can have somebody in the portfolio without fall management or correlation management. Then maybe, yeah, sure, we would have probably not thought about it. But with absolutely nothing to lose and only uh, coming up with um, this idea that, well, we'll have to raise a lot a lot of money to offset this really really low fee, uh, then let's give it a shot and see what happens.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, cool, great stuff. I'm excited to get into the conversation, and um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna s- start off with some of the topics that uh, Andrew uh, wrote to me, and I'm kind of just kind of sort of uh, read them as as they came through. I don't think I've changed much, uh, Andrew, in what you said, but you made a comment I think yesterday on Twitter, uh, Andrew. Maybe I can start with that. Where you asked a question, what should the role of trend following be in a portfolio, and how you thought that you and Jerry might have different views. So, I'd love to hear what you think, Andrew, in terms of what the role should be, and then we see where Jerry uh, might um, agree or disagree.
2: Sure. Well, I think I think the I think you know we spend a lot of time thinking about a segmentation of the investor base, um, mm-hmm. and one of the things I find really interesting about Managed futures, just as a category, is that it has a very, very loyal constituent of allocators, many of whom have owned the space, you know, through good times and bad times. But there are, you know, vast pools of capital who have never really had any exposure to the space in any meaningful way. And so, when you look at the ETF, so the first thing is, you know, what's the vehicle you choose in the ETF world. You know, for reasons we've described in the past is, is really a greenfield opportunity there just hasn't been a lot of good stuff um, a lot of good products have been available and so we thought you know why not do that as opposed to competing with a lot of guys who have great products in the mutual fund world um, and then within that category there are very different investors of different different kinds of stripes and so you know we try to focus on a specific type of investor, that's, that is really building asset allocation models. I mean, BlackRock came out with this extraordinary prediction a couple of weeks ago where they said, you know, the current size of the model portfolio business in the U.S. is something like $5 trillion. And they think it's going to $10 trillion over the next five years. Um, so, you know, 20% growth roughly over that period of time. And so, you know, and that's an area that if you look at, you know, us plus Jerry plus Mount Lucas plus... Uh, Uh, First Trust plus Wisdom Tree plus Corey Hofstein, you know, we are collectively two basis points of the ETF world and a fraction of, it's just a fraction of the overall model space. So again, our focus really is on those guys because those guys, and I think part of what, you know, what Jerry's describing is their world is very bucketed. You know, they have very specific buckets and they want things within those buckets that behave like the bucket is supposed to behave. And that usually means something that's index like. Um, so our approach is really to focus on those guys and try to basically say, look, if you want something that's index like and fee efficient and all these other things and you like ETFs, then that's what we're trying to provide, which is, you know, and I think your point about Jerry breaking new ground is that he's bringing something to market. Um, and again, huge congratulations and and um, you know, welcome to the sandbox uh, is, you know, what he's basically saying is, look, for you're, you're a sophisticated allocator. You can see beyond the limitations of those buckets you're looking for returns you know you want to wake up in five years and have had made more money in a more compelling way we're going to give you a way of doing that and you know so we we think the approaches are different but they're also serving different constituents
1: jerry so andrew is heading for the um uh, the the model portfolio allocators and that's where he sees that trend following fits uh, into a portfolio uh, how do you see that and and how what what are you what are you thinking in terms of where you think the growth might come from for 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 the new ETF? well I
0: think I think it's going to come initially from or exclusively from retail. I think there's a lot of pent up demand for trend following trend following and they don't blink an eye at trend following in a lot of stocks either. So I've had so many people tell me, please do not water this down. Please don't, uh, please give us all the markets and and the stocks. And uh, so we've tried to do that. And I've heard that Andrew say that, yeah, we are getting most of our assets from retail or models and not from institutions. You know, we'll all accept institutions. Eventually, you know, maybe they'll come through uh, the ETF or other vehicles. But uh, wherever it comes from, we'll take it. But I think right now it's pretty much going to come from not, not from institutions, retail people, and uh, the models and things like that. I think that uh, Andrew is managed futures through and through. There's no other way I, that I know of to get access to the top 20 uh, CTAs in the, in the managed futures space than through Andrew. And so our, another reason we wanted to do our fund is because I'm wealthy enough and old enough to do something I just love to do versus uh, maybe it doesn't make a lot of monetary sense And that is to create the best vehicle for trend following for me, in my opinion. So then that would be this 300 markets, 150 of them being stocks. So that's what I wanted to do is put that out there. And that's much different than CTA managed futures in the SOC gen, which doesn't trade equities. Uh, One of our competitors, Matt Lucas, just put out a paper the other day saying, you should not be trading equities in managed futures. So we have a lot of disagreement on that. I mean, I'm in the minority. I'm a, it's a disagreement of ninety nine percent to one percent me if 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 I'm even one percent. So um so Andrew is managed futures. I am CT I'm trend following diversified. It doesn't fit into any institutional box. I claim I wanna say that it's the perfect portfolio tongue in cheek, uh, but it is a great portfolio. It just doesn't fit into what Managed Futures wants and what clients of Managed Futures want, but it does seem to be, at least initially, a lot of uh, individuals, retail, saying, of course, sure, this works for me. I love trend following. So it's a trend-following lover's fund versus a Managed Futures fund.
1: And Now, Andrew, you went on to talk about kind of the nature of diversification and trend-following, And you highlighted a few differences. For example, that Jerry, he argues for single stocks. Um, Some firms will argue for trading, you know, 300 different futures markets. The firm I work for, we don't trade nearly as many markets as that. And then, of course, you trade even fewer, uh, a couple of handfuls to be more precise, uh, so of course, investors might be a little bit confused. I think you could say, uh, in terms of, so what is the best uh, approach? Do you mind talking a little bit about the what do you think the the advantages or disadvantages of each uh, might be, Andrew?
2: Sure. So I think I mean you asked a question that I don't think I sufficiently answered it about what's the role. Everybody's looking for diversification. Uh, people define it differently. You know, I think one of the great characteristics of you know what call pure. Managed Futures is, is this idea that it has zero correlation to both stocks and bonds over time. Incredibly rare. And I think what, what, what Mount Lucas is saying, and they've obviously been doing this for a very long time, they're saying that you know within that broader space, there are certain parts we think are more valuable than others over time in order to accomplish that zero correlation goal. Because, you know as Jerry mentioned, sometimes Managed Futures funds will be long equities. Um, and so you will see these periods periods of higher correlation, but over time, you expect it to be close to zero. Um, look, I, think, I mean, I think the metaphor that I think of, and maybe it's in part because of where I am, um, is managed trend followers in general have what, what I would call wave detectors. You know, they're, they're looking across the sea, the whole expanse of the sea, and they're trying to find different waves. Most of the time, there aren't big waves across most of the sea. But occasionally, you're going to have these periods where you get these kind of punctuated really big waves. And it's very, very rational in that context to be having this discussion about how many instruments you should have. You know, is AHL's evolution product better with 300 instruments versus when you get down to their flagship diversified fund versus a more limited pool? And if they come with an ETF, presumably an even more limited pool. You know, how much do you end up losing, gaining, or benefiting from it? And I think when you're looking, when you're when you have, trying to detect waves, as Jerry says, um, you know, you're trying to find waves wherever they are what we're doing is a little bit different in that we don't have our own wave detectors. What we're trying to identify is is clusters of waves and what's driving that. So if you have a cluster of individual waves, even if they're across different markets, but they're being driven by, you know, more like a tide underneath the surface, then what we're saying is we've identified the tide because the wave detectors have found, have identified um, this tide, and we're just gonna implement it in the most efficient way. And if that's the 10-year Treasury futures, what we're not saying is we think everyone is betting on the 10-year Treasury futures contract, but rather that's the most efficient way to get exposure to this cluster of, of individual waves. So I think, I think both strategies make perfect sense. And I don't have a, an opinion as to whether 40 is the right number of instruments versus 300. Um, I assume, you know, I generally think in, in diversification, you get diminishing returns beyond a certain amount. But Jerry's also doing something very unique.
0: I agree with all of that, and I think it's easier for Andrew to replicate the 20, because there are 20. It's also easier because they are using dynamic position sizing, and they are uh, reducing positions and big trades sometimes due to increased correlation and increased uh, volatility, and we're not. So we're out here cowboy gunslinging and letting this volatility and these grains, wow, check out those grains, as you mentioned, you know. And the sell-offs and some of the sugar and the cocoa and the wild, we're doing nothing. You know, we're not, minim- we're not taking positions off and sort of trying to smooth things out. And so we're going to have a big outlier uh, versus uh, the SokGen 20, which is not probably going to allow one particular trade or a group of trades to get too crazy. They're going to scale back those bonds when the vol gets really high, as you've spoken about, and we're not. So every now and then, we're going to pick up an outlier in sunflower seeds or uh, white maize in South Africa that, um, and not only that, not many people trade it, but also we're not going to scale it back. So it's going to be difficult to, for instance, replicate us or uh, for the Sakshin to look like us because um, we're just doing it so much different. And in a way that very few people like, the reason that those 20 have all that money it's because they don't trade like me. So it's a very different way of doing things. And uh, when you do it our way, it does matter if you uh, add more and more markets, hundreds of markets, because you pick up these outliers and they're spread out over more of the data rather than being clustered. If you're a managed futures CTA and you're continuing to kind of like hey, I don't like that outlier thing. It's getting a little too crazy. My volatility is way more than what I planned it to be. Then the 65, 70 markets is okay. Because like last year, when the pound gets out of control and the yen gets out of control, meaning they're really volatile and really profitable, those trades get scaled back and they start looking more like the euro. So yeah, I just trade euro and yen. That's not a big deal. And so I, I agree that there's not a great reason to add, keep adding market up to market if you're using de- dynamic position sizing. But it does tend to uh, be a, a decent reason to ke- keep adding if you're doing more of the classic caveman pure trend following without doing anything about the vol.
1: I mean, it that kind of sounds intuitively uh, correct, Jerry. But what I see in the industry is actually that most people, uh, and and you refer to the big ones as as, as doing dynamic position sizing, which I don't know for sure, but I think it's probably true. I think most of the big ones actually trading three, four, five hundred markets. I don't see them trading, you know, less than a hundred. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't personally know if one has to, you know, offset the other or uh, as as such. Uh, I, I I just don't know if that's
0: yeah i guess my point was i could see i would agree with the argument i think that uh, andrew is making and i think you've made that they continue to add more and more it just makes less sense uh, you don't really it's not uh, critical to do it if you're not uh, you know letting those profits really run in the traditional trend following way that's all i'm saying
1: Now, one of the things, so obviously you trade single stocks, Jerry, um, and in a big way. I think 50% of the markets you uh, put in the the portfolio is now uh, single stocks. Um, And in the past, you and I have talked about these things, and I've heard you also talk about this on other podcasts, about you prefer the smaller companies, right, that can do kind of crazy things. But I've also, of course, in 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 how many conversations we've had, I've also heard you talk about that. Actually, some of the big outliers that you enjoyed uh, were in Moderna and Tesla, which are not small companies. So how do you how do you balance the picks you make? Because maybe you do have to have some big companies and uh, and 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 maybe more small ones. How how do you do that?
0: That's a great question. People ask me all the time, how do you choose? You know, it's a little daunting task if you want to trade all the futures. We can handle that. It's pretty easy. We just trade them all and it's not that many, 100 or whatever. So, but boy, then you're faced with thousands of equities. It's like, how are we going to make these decisions? And so I make them just based upon diversification. And uh, there's no reason for me to trade a thousand, but I just try to find, you know, 150 really diversified, weird, uh, smaller, as you said, smaller cap companies that uh, don't have a lot of diversification. Maybe they have one. Uh, one business line, and if some fundamental comes through, it could possibly um, move 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 that stock in a in a big way. Uh, I like to trade the commodity related stocks as well because you know I love commodities. I love I'm hunting for the big outliers. So that's another thing I like to do. And we've looked at this um, research, and it does look that I am correct that the research in stocks does kind of show that you do get some bigger trends, usually uh, in the smaller type companies. But you know this idea that, I know I made all this money in Tesla. And so how do you reconcile this? When people ask me, I'm like, look, don't pay too much attention to these ideas because we've made all of our money, the CTAs, on things we'd never thought would happen, things that surprised us. And you can see these big trends all over the place, big companies, small companies. And just because you think you might have a little edge of trading the smaller ones that are less diversified. It doesn't mean you're not going to see big, huge trends in some of the larger companies. So you just cannot get too wedded to these kind of uh, fundamental ideas of what works and what doesn't work in the markets. And so I think it's better to do it this way. It's it's a maybe it's it's a good uh, marketing story as well. But uh, you never can uh, discount. Things that could happen in these markets, and um, it's just a long game over a long period of time, over thirty forty years. I think following these ideas, my systems, my ideas, will work out pretty well and, and be the, be better than some of the other ideas. But at any given point in time, you can see the exact opposite of everything you believed in and start to work. It's very humbling,
2: Jerry. This may be a, a really naive question are you Are you going trend long and short e- individual equities, or or just just long?
0: Uh, Long and short, Uh, that's another thing, too, is it's really dangerous to uh, create a portfolio in in, in any sector that, you you know, frequently not going to have longs and shorts. You know, we kind of enjoyed the short every bond, being short every bond or being long every currency versus being short every currency versus the dollar in the past few years. But, you know, those things and those sector moves, they're really fun. We like to make money in them uh but you really gonna it's really painful to have when that drawdown occurs, but in the stocks, it's really really important to make sure when you when you're you're doing a good job on choosing the equities in your portfolio and uh 'cause it's gonna be a fixed portfolio for me i'm gonna live with these stocks unless they get taken over or go out of business, and so you wanna have this diversification where you have long shorts and f- flats most of the time so in our portfolio we're long and short.
2: Do you find though that you're generally, generally long biased in that since equities generally rise over time?
0: Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I think unlike any of the other sectors, the sh- the, s- the short stocks uh, historically in the back test, they're by far the worst performing shorts. So it's really painful putting on those shorts because they don't really make much money. But, you know, we got to be ready for 2008. And I don't know if they're biased, long or short. I mean, I think it's equally... Uh, Equal, they could be long and short at any time, and uh, but I do think that almost all the profit is coming from the longs. There has never been a period in the back test that I've seen where the shorts actually made money for very long, other than the big uh, crashes. And it's much easier to get short if you're trading single stocks versus indices or ETFs. There's just so many stocks, and you can uh, have a tendency to get. at least have some shorts on more frequently. I would say now that CTAs who just trade stock indices have no shorts, zero. And it's great if it keeps going, but we're risk managers and we like to make the money. But if someone says, are you trying to find the best stocks, the best bonds to short? We're like, no, we're shorting. We're just paying attention to the trends. And sometimes we are going to get caught, long only, short only. But uh, you can do obviously do that in stocks as well. But you just kind of want to treat those stocks in, in a similar philosophical way that they wish for the same things that you wish for in the other sectors.
1: Am I right in saying, Jerry, that you actually used to, tr- to trade the sh- short side only via indices? Is that right? I used to, and then I stopped doing that. Is that just because of liquidity became better on the short? It became easier to borrow stocks to short? Or? No, um, the... You just, like I
0: said a second ago, you get more shorts by trading the stocks. There's just so many indices you can possibly short. And um, yeah, there's many, you know, you know, I could have a whole podcast or a whole series of podcasts uh, talking about indices versus uh, single stocks. But yeah, it's a little bit easier to short the, the stocks and
1: have more of them on. One of the things I'm thinking of as I hear you talk about this and and of course putting 50% of your markets into uh, one sector equities. I imagine, at least that's my experience, that a lot of people who invest in trend following, they do that to diversify away from equities. Do you have you found, or do you think that maybe your correlation to equities, to the portfolios people are trying to diversify away f- from, will increase given the fact that you've giving it more weight now?
0: Well, yes and no. I think. I think that the correlation I would have if I traded indices right now would be higher. My stocks are just way too different and they're not really making as much money as the S&P. So I think um, all of the CTAs who are along the indices probably now have more correlation because stocks are going up. And I kind of, but I reject the whole thesis that we should care at all, uh, once again, managed futures versus trend following. I reject the whole idea that I should do anything in my business and in my portfolio that helps me fit in better with the traditional portfolio. (laughs) So I'm laughing because I know this is just the opposite of the way everyone else thinks. And it's just a different product. It's just saying, hey, yeah, that's not. we're not part of that. We are trend following as many markets as possible and putting trend following center stage. It's all we care about is making it the best it can be. And I think institutions are going to say, Oh, how would I, why would I invest in that? I am not going to uh, sell some of my stocks for God's sake and give it to him to trend follow. That's just too weird. Uh, retail uh, people who love ETFs and who love trend following, they say, hell yeah, I want a stop loss and a trailing stop wrapped around every market I trade. And as I've said before, tongue in cheek again, you know, I think we may have, People may have less crisis by, by trend-following their equities uh, and less need for crisis alpha. Let's take that uh, what we offer people, this wonderful trend-following, and apply it directly to those stocks, and let's see if that doesn't do quite a bit for crisis periods versus an allocation of 5 or 10% to CTAs uh, for crisis alpha.
1: Yeah, that will be interesting to, to, to see. I don't agree 100% in terms of if we, and I'm not sure that's really what you said, but I don't think we as an industry really design our portfolios with that in mind, that it has to be a crisis alpha, except a few. A few people will do that. They'll do it by capping the allocation to equities or removing it. And uh, of course, when I spoke uh, with PIMCO recently, they said, yeah, we specifically designed it with a speed that makes it very, you know, very good for for crisis. But generally speaking, I would say, not a lot of the people that we uh, talked to in the, um, in the uh, CTA series, uh, I would say has, uh, has that in mind. It's more just a, something that comes out as being, you know, doing pretty well during crises. Yeah, I, I, I never did that when I
0: traded. When I was in managed futures, I was knee-deep in managed futures uh, in the 90s, and um, I would never do that. And I don't think it's necessary. It's um, we, we offer this diversification because of the currencies, commodities, and interest rates, long and short. And frankly, adding trend following to equities or stock indices does create a bit of a difference than buy and hold.
1: Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, on this vein about the equities, and, and we have a lot of topics we should we, we need to get through, but but there was one question that came in uh, when people heard both of you were coming. Uh, but it is a question for, for Jerry. It's from Oliver. And he says, Jerry has a good argument for going long equity in trend funds instead of just short and flat. Uh, but most investors will have long equity allocation at almost no cost. So I don't see the point in paying higher fees for trendfall and going long equities, unless hold as a standalone fund, I'm not sure what what, what that means, but is that something you thought about that maybe people will feel, well, hang on, um, I can get this for five basis points uh, from Vanguard. um, Why pay Jerry 1.1%? I I mean, is that something you thought about or? Well, that's a good, uh, not right now, not
0: not until now. I think that's a good question. Um, So basically, uh, obviously the answer is, um, you know, I'm laughing because we, our fees are so low, but the answer basically is, is that the value of the trend following, you know, what is the value of trend following? What is the value of um, a a, a trailing stop, a stop loss? And to some degree, when you put it all into one portfolio, you decrease the volatility of the entire portfolio and you make it more stocks uh, because I'm trading currencies, commodities and interest rates long and short. that could be a little added benefit but um, do you want that trend following? Yeah, you definitely want it when stocks crash and sell off. You want the shorts that are going with the trend as well. You want that kind of long short stuff when uh, all hell breaks loose. And of course, you need it before all hell breaks loose. And uh, But you don't need it. You discount it. Ho-hum, why would I pay for that when equities are having a good period? So, yeah, I mean, uh, that. but that's an interesting question. I like it.
2: Jerry, I actually think it's a huge competitive advantage for not for the guy who sent in the question, but if you just think about equities, equities generally are going to trend up. And the big issue that allocators have in this space, and one of the, the kind of pithy things that I say is 20% of the time, managed futures will be your very favorite investment. Like it's, you know, it goes up 20% last year when everything else is going down. The, the hard part is the other 80%. And again, I'm not, I don't know this overlap between the mutual fund that you run versus versus this but when i looked at your mutual fund one of the things that i found was during this long winter it did okay it did hundreds of basis points more than cash during that period of time in part because it had a little bit more long equity exposure or positive baited equities during a period of time when equities were going up 15 percent a year and so i think the the struggle that people face as a practical matter is how do I construct an investment in this portfolio so I do own it in January of 2022 when I then need it to go up, And so I think, and I think actually there are analogs out there of in the mutual fund space, you know, where Milburn is paired with an equity allocation by Catalyst, and it's a $6 billion fund that charges more than 200 basis points. So there's clearly an audience out there. And by the way, Eric Crittenden's fund um, at Standpoint does, does the same thing. So there's something really powerful in being able to wrap some hedge against a long winter in a portfolio. And so I think, you know, if I was talking to allocators in your space, part of it, that's kind of the way that I would frame it is that, is it actually a little bit of equity allocation is great.
0: I can tell you a really funny Eric story. He's going to disagree with it. I'm really going, I'm going out of limb telling it. He's going to say it's not true, but he's a good friend of mine. And he, told me I'm going to have this mutual fund with 50% stocks, indices, long only, all the time, 50% managed futures. And I said, oh, you can't do that because you'll be charging these people uh, half your 1.5% fee on the long only buy and hold. The same question Niels just asked me, right? And uh, he came back and he said, uh, I, listened. I listened to his marketing idea Much later, and his idea was, that no, that's not how we do it. We have 100% of our assets in the Managed Futures piece, and rather than doing treasury bills with the excess, we put them into indices. The exact same thing, but I said, that's just brilliant. That's just absolutely brilliant way of marketing that. So maybe I could come up with a better answer from a marketing point of view later, Niels. But uh, another thing, too, that Eric wrote was that paper, and it's been duplicated many times, that... uh, you know, 4% of the stocks are responsible for all of the profits in the buy and hold world. And so well, the interesting thing about trend following is that it's, it, it transforms almost all of the markets, 90% of the markets, into profitable uh, contributors. And so that's another benefit of trend following is that you really do have to do an index to get that 4%. Hopefully that those it'll be represented in an index. But with trend following, when we put stocks in there and we trend follow. Almost every single one of them over time is going to show profits because that's what trend following does. It rehabilitates all of these markets that are not graded buy and hold, whether it be currencies, commodities, or um, interest rates, and makes them all of a sudden not only diversifiers but positive contributors to the portfolio. So that's another reason that you know uh, once again, where is this big anxiety? I've got some of my stocks that are buy and hold. It tends to work all the time with massive drawdowns. I I've got some of my stocks that I'm trend following with Jerry, paying attention to Eric's paper that trend following on stocks does work, which I think he wrote in the nineties. And so it's it's like a no-brainer. You want to have a little bit of both.
1: Now, uh, we got quite a few topics. I want to get to Jerry's because there's always some really good, juicy stuff in them. But I want to finish off with uh, at least one. We can always go back to more. But uh, there was one that I thought was interesting also, Andrew, that you you put a question about will large established hedge funds bring ETFs to market? And I think in general that this is an important question. And so, um, any of you uh, wanna 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 dive into? Uh, will there be will there be more people joining you in in the ETF world?
2: Well, I, I, the, there was a lot of talk about it at the end of last year, and early this year, um, and then. Uh, but again, it's possible people have filed registration statements. I haven't seen it, but but definitely some of the bigger players that you would expect who had huge asset growth last year. There was. Talk of them coming with ETFs probably with stripped down versions of what they were doing. So you know, so you probably have the hedge fund product, which has the most complexity, most inter- instruments, etc. You do a somewhat more constrained version of it in the mutual fund, and then you do an even simpler version. My guess would be is how they would do it in in the ETF, so it wouldn't cannibalize the mutual fund. um I think the 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 interesting thing that will come out of it if people first of all, and, and we are. Fully supportive. We want more great products to be available in the ETF space because this isn't about taking share from the guy sitting next to you. It's about how do we grow the pie hundred x over the next ten years. That you know, private equity has done it, private credit has done it, um, uh, hedge funds overall have done it. So the question that these guys will face is is under if the simpler ETF product that is also cheaper outperforms a mutual fund, which on average is still 170 basis points, and if the mutual fund outperforms a hedge fund with an incentive fee structure, what does that do to, do they risk cannibalizing their own businesses? And, you know, we'll know the answer to that in five years.
1: Maybe you can explain this to me, Andrew. Why, generally speaking, are ETFs, I mean, for example, Jerry has a mutual fund and he has an ETF now. I don't know the fee structure in both. Maybe they're not that Dissimilar. Uh, Jerry probably knows this, but why couldn't they be more or less priced at the same level? What's the big difference?
2: Well, so they could be. So, look, the whole this whole idea of taking hedge fund strategies and putting them in mutual funds. um, When people were setting pricing expectations originally, this goes back to the early 2010s, The idea was, you know, that hedge fund product over there that XYZ firm is running, when you do one and a half and twenty, is you know three or four points a year. That's too much in mutual fund land because an advisor who's used to paying, you know, 50, 70 basis points in mutual funds is now looking at a 400 basis point product. And the first generation of managed futures um, uh, mutual funds, which were launched by firms like Equinox and Low Core, et cetera, were paying managers out of the Cayman sub so they could pay incentive fees and the reported fees were very, very high. Um, That has obviously evolved and changed a lot over time. So, so the prices were set kind of here. And then, in general, people haven't wanted to break from the pack and go too cheap relative to it. Um, in the ETF world, people are starting with the expectation that things should be free. Like the, because Vanguard and BlackRock have been in this, um, like this Thunderdome cage match of all time, trying to basically you know, drive ETF pricing for simple traditional passive products. So a lot of the ETF world, you say that thing costs 40 basis points and people faint. Um, uh, In mutual fund land, you say it costs 170 basis points and they think it's expensive, but they'll deal with it. Um, So it really has to do with kind of the the investor psychology and expectations around it. Um, In ETF land, we think, you know, we think obviously prices won't converge down to those levels. But in five years or 10 years, if the space really grows, you probably will see some price compression uh, on the management fee side.
1: Now let's jump into some of your uh, juicy topics, Jerry. Uh, thank you for sending them over. First one, which um, kind of took me a little bit surprised, was are we in a hedge fund CTA fee bubble? What's going on here?
0: Yeah, you you know me so well that just trying to make you laugh and make you say something controversial, would, when I can't really back it up. It's just uh, so normal. But yeah, you know, we keep reading about... Um, these uh, pass-through fees and hedge funds, and you just can't get enough of the multi-strats, and they're willing to pay anything, yoga classes. I tweet about this stuff sometimes. And uh, and I think, you know, and you're shocked. You know, you're shocked, Niels, and Managed Futures are, is shocked and upset by Tim got very upset. And uh, some of the arguments does come across as just trying to uh, criticize ETFs or replication just comes across as, uh, trying just to protect the fee structure. So I think it, uh, it will be shocking, uh, if this, uh, lower fees and this ETFs do come about and, uh, it's more of a normal type of a thing that, uh, CTAs and managed futures has to accept. And what are, what are, what are they going to do rather than complain and get on podcast and talk about taking uh, food off your table? Uh, this is, this is the norm. And, um, uh, I was one of the first adopters of mutual funds, and I received an incentive fee in a swap, and that has all changed dramatically. Now we're up to ETFs. Now we're kind of giving it away for free, and uh, but this may be the beginning and something that the managed futures has to uh, has to deal with their own version. And you're like, well, we deserve this money. Yeah, we all deserve it, but it's the very competitive marketplace. And as you, I think you said once before, on your podcast, um, our fund is not a watered-down version. And I don't think Andrew's is either. And so this is another shot across the bow. Now they're willing to work for 100 basis points, and it's not the watered-down version. And I wouldn't even classify ours as uh, the index version, the beta version. But hold on. As you know, it's very difficult to beat beta sometimes. Uh, It's hard to beat the S&P. And I think it's going to be hard to be classic trend with 300 markets. Um, So I do think that even though I think the fees are definitely justified, and I don't even think about the fees that uh, CTAs charge at all, I do think that the marketplace is very brutal, and it does have a tendency to change. And um, it's it's, it's really dangerous to be caught flat-footed and try to talk your way out of it.
1: Okay, so, I mean, obviously, this is probably an area where I've expressed some concern. And if I take my analogy, Andrew, he's very good at analogies, and I can't really think of one right now, except for maybe low-cost airlines. They certainly disrupted that industry, but I don't think it's necessarily been a great experience always to get on a low-cost airline. But am I hearing you correctly here, Jerry, saying... Okay so you you kind of you you kind of smell where the industry is going you you think that fees eventually will come down and has come down so why don't i just and i use the word you know as you know uh, a little bit in just saying yeah we're going to give it away for 50 basis points plus some costs for the for the uh, for the platform but of course you come from a world where incentive fees treated you very well right? I mean, that's kind of how you build um, your, your business. So you're not philosophically against perfor- uh, performance fees, I imagine, but you just think this is where it's going to go. So I might as well be the first one to really go out and disrupt. Is, is that kind of somewhere along the lines? Not really, because I think the first question you asked, I said,
0: um, no, I wasn't predicting that. No, I'm not being nice. No, I don't think this is where it's going. I had no choice. I had no other way. No other reason. I, I was just in a fortunate or unfortunate situation, depending upon how it plays out, that I had nothing to lose. Uh, we couldn't. Ra- we've already raised more money in our ETF than we've raised in the past four or five years, in, uh, in our private fund. So I hope it continues. I'm not sure it. Uh, but no, I'm not predicting. Uh, you even called it, Neil's. Um, Oh, by definition, if you're charging less money, and I'm smiling, everyone, I'm smiling. I'm not. I'm not offended. Then that means you're a bad manager or something like that. You no, really... I said
1: lower fees may be negative alpha. That's what I <laughs> That's said. Right. That's yeah. what I
0: said. That's right. That's right.
1: But you know, but I wasn't uh, thinking of you, of course, Jerry. I was thinking of comparing <laughs> the bridge alternative index with the Sockgen CT index. <laughs> oh God, we're forever friends, and uh, you cannot offend me.
0: So, but you know, Niels, in America, and I think in Europe as well, we are very, the history of business is that we are very used to getting things cheaper and better, not just in stock indexes, not just uh, 50 basis points down to five or four, uh, free trading on Robin Hood, but it's everything in America, Americans, except for healthcare and uh college education we get we're continually in this type of society markets, free markets, educated people, free countries Europe the US and Asia and everywhere around the world if you have that type of system you're frequently seeing cheaper it's better what did, you know so you can take that to a certain limit and it's the ETF wrapper people love this wrapper one of the things that I think they love about it so much is uh, the anonymity. I think people really would like to fire me without having to talk to me. I think, uh, honestly, I think that a lot of it is that. They just, uh, and I've looked at Andrew's investors through these SEC websites, and he has some large investors, and I don't know if he's ever even talked to them, these institutions and family offices. And I think just being able to get in with no paperwork, it's online, it's modern it's buying a stock. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can dip my toe in, and then I don't like these guys. I don't like this product. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a bad period to be able to go in there and just sell it and not have to talk to the people in my office like, and, you know, what's Jerry going to think? We just got in. He just made this big presentation. I feel kind of bad. I have to get rid of this. I don't really believe in it anymore or whatever. It's, I think that is a huge benefit. Uh, to, to this product, and people love it, and people convert, I think, converting mutual funds into ETFs, a lot of it is for the, the tax benefits. It's just the rage these days, where um, I think pretty soon there's there be much fewer mutual funds, because uh, it seems that that is what people are doing.
1: I kind of understand that actually. I think that's an interesting argument and probably never thought about it much. But I will say two things. One is that I mean you can actually buy most funds and being anonymous, I mean because you can just do it through a, a, a platform. Uh, certainly here in Europe, a lot of our clients we, you can't we can't see who they are. But the other thing, and, and maybe that's something that should be a concern for all of us because as you make it so easy for them, as you say to just sell the investment, most investors in 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 our space are too short term. I mean, they never stay long enough for 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 the full enjoyment. And now we're giving them even more tools to become shorter term in their investment horizon. So I think it kind of goes both ways. I think you're right. They will probably see it as an advantage. But if they look at their performance over time, it may actually be a disadvantage for them. I uh, yeah, I agree with that
2: we got into the managed futures space back in 2015. And you know, back then, the debate wasn't whether ETFs were going to cannibalize the industry, but whether banks offering swap products at low fees were going to cannibalize the industry. Um, you know, We had GSA had come out of nowhere and raised, from what I understand, to be $10 billion because they launched a product at 50 basis points. So so we, we actually, you know, I have had a lot of conversations with guys who are big allocators at global consulting firms or guys who run big sovereign wealth funds. And, and in a sense, they view the way that we historically have outperformed, you know, the SockGen CTA index through cutting out fees. They're actually say the same thing. They say, we actually don't know whether, you know, Mann, PIMCO, Winton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is going to do better over the next 12 months so we spread our bets around them but we've got three billion dollars to put to work in the space and if somebody suggests one and a half and 20 we walk out the door and then by the time we're getting close to the door they've you know caved on fees by 50 so i think i think i think the etf side of it gets gets knocked because people associate etfs with five basis point products you know i i think the people who invest in etfs very much believe in the structure. And they believe that this is an, a, a financial innovation relative to mutual funds. And you can make that argument in certain areas, not others. But anyways, I, I think this is just part of a long arc as to how people can access the space in different ways. I would offer counter analogies like the millennium and others or frankly private equity overall or private credit where you have huge areas that have grown exponentially and has done nothing to diminish the fees that people charge over time. Um, so a lot and a lot of that has to do with access, industry structure, who's also getting paid through through the economic chain. So it's, you know, by no means do we have this kind of a global, efficient allocation process, but I think I think just sort of a you know over the long arc of history, these are the questions people are facing.
1: I want to end on a positive note, so I don't want to end just now. I do want to go get into one thing that I think is a little bit controversial when I read the headline, but I think it's important we talk about. And that is this topic that Jerry wrote, and that is... Trend following versus managed futures, two different things. And I can't wait to get into this one. So, Jerry, uh, you were part of the managed futures industry uh, until recently when you started talking about it in a different light to what you do. So tell me a little bit about not only what you see the differences, but actually why you think it is important to now look at it as two different things because it is a little bit con- confrontational when you n- label it mismanaged futures. That's, you know, so and uh, I'm curious about why we are going down that path. Oh, well, I think it's uh, in my best interest, you know,
0: to, to go down that path. And I think a lot of the CTAs on your podcast, and I just would say that uh, I, I can't think of anything I've enjoyed more than that series of CTAs. I mean, that was so much fun. And um, you guys, you and Alan did such a great job. I loved it. I've listened to them way more than once each. <clears throat> I tweeted about them. I really, uh, it rivals Market Wizards. And I, I liked it more than Market Wizards books. It's the updated version. And you need to do more. And they were just fantastic. Well, we'll do one
1: with you next week, Jerry. Yeah, remember yeah, that. Yeah, Well, I'm, I'm so <laughs> honored. And I
0: was going to save that those compliments and what I felt about it to then. But uh but look, those guys don't hold back Neils. They do not hold back on their advocating what they do and how they do it and how wonderful it is. And there's a couple that got me going and uptight to make fun of or or in their own way uh describe the turtles, Richard Dennis, one in particular, who continues to say well, we hit. You know, we we invaded America, and we all our competition was this group of turtles, who their mentor came off the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade and jotted down a few rules, and this is and they started trading. So it wasn't much of a competition for us to use our PhDs and our fancy computers, and that's just not very true. All of that description is not. But you know, uh, I think as as you. Probably encountered as well. When you're in, a, in an industry and in, in a niche like we are, you do go to these conferences and you are friends. And you do try to be uh, gentlemen and gentle ladies. But there are times where you do see the need to, in public or private to step up and talk about the differences and why you think yours are better. So, little old me <laughs> alone trading equities with trend following, not using dynamic position sizes sizing, who else, other than me, Rich, Moritz, Melisinos, and Mulvaney, you know, that's not a very, a very big group, $300 million total under management between all of us, <laughs> something like that, standing up for ourselves and trying to say, uh, okay, we like really believe in this trend following stuff, letting profits run, one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, no d- dynamic position sizing. This is all we have. This is all we've got. Most people don't like it. They totally much prefer Managed Futures in the SOC p 20. And uh, that's probably not going to change, but at least let us show the differences and the, the value of hunting outliers with hundreds of markets and our little philosophy and make the distinction between, because uh, we're not going along with these improvements and involvements in Managed Futures, that has made core trend following less pure and more of... Um, you know, vol management, correlation management, dynamic position sizing—not, none of that has anything to do with making an argument that it's better or worse, or that uh, it's certainly. I'll make the argument all day long. It's what people prefer. For God's sakes, who, who can, who can deny that? Just let us have our moment with our little retail clients in our ETFs, and uh, let us continue just like those guys to. Make put forth some distinctions between uh, how we do things, and we, you know, and trading stocks. I think uh, I will say that I do think that the biggest mistakes in the managed futures industry is not trading single stocks. No one's going to take you that seriously. They're always going to relegate you to a small allocation of the portfolio if you don't trade single equities. And this is going to be something that happens over time, where they will take advantage of all these great markets and all this diversification and trade hundreds and hundreds of single stocks. Will there be 50%? Probably not, but it'll be a huge chunk. It'll be a welcome addition, and it will make the CTAs more of a go-to portfolio and a standalone in a portfolio rather than always, always having to be this sad story of we're put on this earth for one purpose only, and that is to add some sort of crisis alpha or something along a, a traditional portfolio, just like the KLM, just like the Yep, it, it, Mount Lucas article. We've sold our soul totally to just being an add-on to a traditional portfolio. No other hedge fund category talks like that and acts like that. <clears throat> they embrace all the markets, and I would not say embrace equities if it wasn't worthwhile to do it. Just because it's out there doesn't mean you have to do it. But of course, everything works.
1: Trend following works pretty well with almost every market. The the thing is though, Jerry that I, I've heard you, I've paid, been paying attention recently because I knew we were having this conversation. So I've actually heard you very, very recently in the last 24 hours say, well, if it doesn't prove that I'm right, I'm going to come out and not say I'm wrong, but I'm going to come out and, and apologize. I think that what you said, but here's my point. If, if it here's doesn't,
0: my point. Like, like one of your points has always been, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't think it really matters. I haven't seen much of a difference. Well, once again, you're talking about Moritz, Richard, and me. Uh, so it's not like not like there's been a lot of comparison between the sock. I don't, I've never seen someone say, "Let me compare myself to Jerry, Richard, and Moritz." You know, a sock chip twenty CTA that just doesn't occur. But yeah, if it doesn't matter trading equities, doesn't it make it better if pure trend following and no dynamic position size? If it's not better, I better get out there and say hey, it's not better. Uh, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Uh, but I, So it needs to make a difference. I'm going to do more than just apologize. I'm going to say I'm wrong. I may say I'm wrong before I apologize. I'm
1: trying to do the best I can to make trend following look the best it possibly can. My My point was a slightly different one, and that is, I mean we we should already know this right we should already know this because your your strategy is not different it's just a different wrapper right so you already have experience with trading lots of stocks and 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 doing no dynamic position sizing all of that so we have the data we just look at the data it shouldn't be a big mystery is one better than the other? And and to me, and you know, because I obviously hear uh, uh, you talk on, on, on your shows and uh, and and you often refer me uh, to me saying, well, Niels will say he's not seen the evidence. And I still will say, I haven't really seen the evidence if I look at these different types of strategies and their long-term track record. It doesn't look vastly different to me in the overall stats, but of course, year by year, yeah, it's going to be different. And what's intriguing to me and, and again, I come. I work for a firm where we did exactly like you, no dynamic position sizing up until 2006, and then we changed. So we have kind of experience in both worlds. And by the way, I agree that those people who came out saying, well, this was just a trader coming from the floor. I mean, obviously, they're misinformed, not only by Rich, but they're also misinformed by the fact that the industry didn't start with the turtles. I mean, there are CTAs that have been around since the 70s, and we were not taught by uh, rich, right? We we had to develop this ourselves. Um, and many of those actually has PhDs as a background. So clearly, that's a misinformed uh, comment. I can understand why that uh, might get uh, get to you. But, but here's where I find the discussion interesting between the two forms. Because to me, whether you do one or the other, yeah, okay, maybe you philosophically, you can be attached to one way or the other. But actually, it should just be down to what you're comfortable with, what you prefer, and let, let the numbers turn out uh, in terms of evidence. But what's interesting to me is the following. So when you argue for one entry, one exit, and, and, a, a, and a stop loss, the difference is not the, the fact that you don't think volatility is important and the others think that volatility is super. Everyone thinks volatility is important. You just choose to sample it only at the entry date, right? The same with correlations. It's not that you don't think correlations aren't important because you, as you talked today about, you want to find lots of different markets that are not correlated. Now, I would take it a bit further where I say, yeah, that is true, but we should also concern ourselves about the correlation of the positions we have because it doesn't really matter what the correlation is between markets if we have no position in them. That doesn't change our risk but the positions sure we should worry about the, the correlations here so again to some extent both camps feel that correlations are important they just want to choose to do use that information at different times and in different ways so i guess my point is i understand that there is a difference but i also think it is important that we can and i know we debated this a little bit on twitter where so you just have to follow the golden rules and you say yeah but let's what, what are the golden rules but you know i think we both know what the golden rules are roughly and and what i love about it is actually instead of being divisive about one camp versus the other i just celebrate the fact that frankly we can all be successful Doing it a little bit differently because I actually think that shows the strength of the underlying philosophy, namely trend following. That's kind of how I see it. I guess that's where, where I come from. Uh, Andrew, do you have any opinion or any any view on what Jerry and I just got through here? Yeah. Look, I think so. Look, I mean, I've written
2: a lot about uh, nomenclature in this business, and and I think you know, trend following is, you know, is, is a concept when we first looked at it back in 2015, we came to the conclusion that everybody was defining it somewhat differently. Um, and, you know, whereas if you say, how did equities go up last year, you, there are four or five, you know, indices that people will use to refer to, but most people will refer to the S&P 500 or the MSCI uh, world. Um, you know, nobody says, how did equities do last year? Oh, you know, um, Indian equities doubled. Um, so I think, look, I think, I think there's always a healthy debate around it. And with the understanding, everybody talks their book when we've looked at it as somewhat of an outsider, you know, we haven't seen persistent evidence that if, if there was one particular approach that did meaningfully better than everything else, if there was one guy out there who had a sharp ratio of 1.2 over the past 20 years, guess what? The other 19 would be copying what they're doing. You know, this is a business where this is, this is not Renaissance medallion. This is where, where, you know, there's some secret sauce and proprietary data and all sorts of things that they have to do it and so i think the fact that we're all debating what are the parameters and how you define it is to me a sort of evidence that we're really talking about here is some sort of a strategy or asset class it's some sort of a a you know a, a phenomenon in the markets that we fell in love with on our side because we think that there are excess returns over time and then the question becomes how do you package it how much idiosyncratic risk do you want to take you know what do you think it's worth it to pay for it how do you structure incentives as you know you've talked about to make sure that the teams are are, are finding the best ways to do that and so i think you know the difference for us between managed futures versus trend following is is uh, the definitions will wax and wane over time depending upon when we started trend was unpopular and everything non-trend was popular uh, It's sort of why we focused on the on the whole cta index in the beginning. You know, very quickly, particularly after March of 2020, when trend came back, then trend itself became hot. You know, went in kind of reverse course and then started calling themselves a, a managed futures fund again. So, look, I think I think this will evolve and change over time. But as you guys know, I'm all in favor of lots of healthy debate and disagreement.
1: It reminds me back in 1994, Jerry might remember this, but there was a big conference, uh, MFA conference of some sort. Uh, in Chicago, and 1994 was a pretty difficult year for our industry. And I distinctly remember, I mean, Jerry could well have been part of the panel, but all the big managers uh, in the industry um, were sitting at this panel. And more, and more and more of them started talking about it themselves as a hedge fund. They didn't really like the label CTA anymore. And then, of course, it, it reversed back. Um, but by the way, I just want to say that there's one thing that I think Jerry and I will agree on uh, 100% in what you just said there, Andrew, and that is, we would probably do the opposite. If we saw a strategy that with a sharp of 1.9, we would say that's definitely not where we are going. Um, But that's just because we think that's not possible for a true trend-following approach. And it doesn't need to be uh, that. I want to finish the conversation and wrap it up, but I want to give you both the opportunity to um, just bring up anything that you think uh, we we have missed uh, in our coverage of the CTA ETF uh, space. Um, anything that springs to mind, Jerry? Anything that you that I forgot to bring up?
0: I can't think of it, but maybe after Andrew goes, I'll, uh, okay, okay, fair yeah. enough.
2: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in one. This is actually more of a shout out to Jerry and his icebreaker carving a new approach. So, one one of the things that's driven the growth of ETFs on the equity side is the fact that they can be more tax efficient. And, um, and when you have long equity positions in ETFs that have material gains, so if Jerry had had a long position in Tesla for five years, um, his investors in the ETF would not have realized a capital gain um, uh, on that over time, if, if properly structured. And he's working with the right guys on the, on the ETF side. So in, in it, one of the innovations that may come out of it is that Jerry may be carving a path where you can take a portion, not all, but a portion of managed futures Returns in an ETF and make it somewhat more tax efficient. Uh, it's not something you can currently do with futures. Um, although we know a lot of people are trying to figure out ways of making it more tax efficient over time. It's a, it's a structural quirk between ETFs and mutual funds. Um, but you know, but that's sort of the holy grail is if you can figure out a way to do this and make it tax efficient and give people crisis alpha and do it at reasonable fees and give them daily liquidity and you know. So hopefully, maybe maybe in five years we'll be having that conversation.
0: Oh yeah, I did see this one uh, note that I made. Uh, was int- I enjoyed really enjoyed the pod your last podcast with Rob, and I think the, you titled it. Uh, well, one of the things you put on Twitter was is trend following a trend follower, a trend following ETF a good or bad idea? And I, I agree with you guys. It's no, not necessary uh, if we're inside of that ETF if we're we're handling the trend following, and so you can safely buy the dips on the trend following. And over the years, I ran research on this very question of, you know, buying, uh, when's the best time to buy Chesapeake, or I think it was I was using Chesapeake and Winton at the time to see if I got different results, and I didn't. And the results I got was there was no difference between buying in a downtrend after losing months or buying after winning months, uh, because it's a positive game. And we are winning over time. And you can't predict. There's so many times I've told clients, do not buy now. I'm up 20% for the year. It's just February. And I ended the year sixty up 60%. So if you don't buy the new highs, you're going to miss... I mean, look at Dunn last year. When should you have bought Dunn? After a drawdown? No, no, no. Whoa. What a mistake that would have been. So it's a great investment because you can will give you one pass in your entire life of buying dips. And that's with your CTA trend follower because they're playing a positive game and they're winning over time. And it's just as equal to buying a downtrend as it is at new equity highs.
1: You can't predict these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well said, and yeah, that was actually a question we had uh, last week. If you can, if you should trend follow a trend follower, and and uh, I certainly uh, remember that uh, when Bill Don came to the office, he would always use the quote saying that the best time to buy a trend follower is at the bottom of a drawdown, but the second best time is today. And I think that uh, is is actually uh, what you said as well, Jerry. Now this has been amazing. I really appreciate uh, your time. I think a lot of people will have. Thoroughly enjoyed our uh, CTA ETF uh, discussion today, and I'm sure there'll be more to follow uh, as Jerry's new product um, launches and at get, at gets into its stride. And if you do enjoy these conversations, why don't you head over to your favorite uh, platform where you listen to podcasts, leave a rating and review. We very much appreciate it. Next week, I'll be joined by Nick Balters from Goldman Sachs. So make sure you send your questions for the upcoming episode. Always info at is where you can send them to. From Andrew, Jerry, and me. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next time uh, next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.